Hello, friends. I'm a big believer that behavioral change happens fastest when we learn skills in small doses, followed by actually practicing the new skill. It takes us time to absorb and implement real change. In this conversation with Dr. Diana Hill, she gives us insight into how psychological flexibility helps us integrate our values, intentions, and discipline into day-to-day life to create the life we intend. In the ACT Daily Journal, authors Diana Hill and Debbie Sorensen give us just what we need to make that happen. Listen up. I think you're going to like this show. Welcome, Diana. I was really intrigued by the book and also, you know, I haven't heard of acceptance and commitment therapy before. So there was a lot of things there that were new to me, and that's very exciting. So thank you for joining me on the podcast. And why don't we start with that? Tell me what ACT is. Great. Well, acceptance and commitment therapy is a modern approach to therapy in that it incorporates a lot of the science of psychology and behavior change with more of the acceptance-based models that are coming out now in terms of mindfulness, being present, but also a values-based orientation. So in ACT, as it's sort of said as one word, ACT, in ACT, you uh, begin to learn these six core processes that are involved in psychological flexibility. And what the research is showing is that psychological flexibility is one of the key things that is helpful for folks to really flourish in their lives, adapt to change. And it's being used for everything from people that struggle with chronic pain and insomnia and anxiety to people that want to perform better at work, be better leaders, um, more values oriented in their um, life as parents, as well as Olympic athletes. So Mm. ACT is a really fun new approach to living well, really. Well, it sounds great. Why don't you um, expand a little bit on what psychological flexibility entails? Because that sounds really interesting. (laughs) So psychological flexibility is your ability to stay in the present, be open, accept and allow what is, while also having clarity about what is most important to you, what you care most about, Mm -hmm. and move in the direction of what you care about, even in the face of challenges and difficulties. And when you do that, your life starts opening up because you're not pushed around by your challenging thoughts and you're not uh, entangled up in your painful emotions, but rather you have a sense of sort of freedom to move, range of motion in your life to pursue what matters most to you. Mm-hmm. And that's, is that really based on, you know, when we set an intention as to who we intend to be, what kind of person do I want to be? Um, it sounds like having that awareness and that ability to be open is really kind of at the core of that. Yeah. And values is really at the core of it. And in ACT, we teach these six core processes in in the book. We teach these six core processes and values being one of them and values being really personal and chosen by you. Mm -hmm. So when you're living out your values, you feel more aligned in your life. You feel more satisfied. A lot of times we're, as Stephen Covey would say, you know, we're climbing ladders really fast without looking at what wall 
they're against. Right? <laughs> and so values help you take a look like, is this, is this the ladder I want to be climbing? Is this in the direction of how I want to be in the world? And then some of the behavioral science around it is how do you actually set up daily habits so that you are on a regular basis turning over and over again towards your values. So for example, if a parent, as a parent, you know, you may get really irritable with your kids, but maybe you have a value of being present and being kind and being compassionate. And in that moment, when you're psychologically flexible, you're able to pause and notice that irritability rise. And then you're also able to choose the behavior that is aligned with how you wanna be. And that mm -hmm. sounds simple, but it's not always easy to do. And it takes practice. Yeah, yeah, I bet it does. And like anything, it takes practice. And, you know, I was in a conversation today that we were saying, you know, people are kind of lazy. We want to be able to, you know, we're going to do these six steps and the whole world will be beautiful and wonderful. And, you know, it's not, um, nothing comes that easily. Setting intentions and bringing those values forward doesn't always come easily to people. So do you have um, something in place that helps people keep checking in with themselves, checking in, where am I? How does this relate to my values and what my intentions are? Yeah, well, sort of building on the, the people are lazy, I would, I would add to that and say it's actually our brains that are quite lazy because our mm -hmm. brains will always choose the least effortful option. Our brains will always choose the option that is in the short term, most rewarding and least painful. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes when you think about things that are most important to you, they have some degree of discomfort associated with them and short term, they may not feed back to you really quickly, right? So say you really care about being um, a loving uh, daughter to your parent and your parent is, is challenging, you know, a challenging parent that it doesn't always feel good to live out that value, right? And so the way in ACT that we, we teach values through the core process of committed action is, is sort of getting clear on, on what would be meaningful life to you, what would be a satisfying life to you, how do you want to be in the world, and then using these sort of daily practices of checking in, where am I at, pausing, being mindful, being present, and then also the other part of it is noticing how our thoughts and our self stories can hook us. Mm. And there's a um, there's a psychologist Benji Schoendorf that uh, has written a lot on ACT, and he talks about thoughts or difficult emotions or self stories as being like hooks when you're a fish swimming down a stream. <laughs> and if you can imagine you're you're a fish swimming down the stream of your life and you get hooked, all of a sudden you're moving in a different direction than the way you wanted to be going. Right. And so we can tell, we start to pay attention to when are we getting hooked? And then some of these act strategies are all about unhooking, how to unhook from our thoughts, how to unhook from stories like, I am this, I am not that, I always, I never, that send us in directions that we don't really want to be going in our life. Mm -hmm. So noticing that those stories, recognizing that they exist for one, and then choice. You know, choice is so important and something that a lot of times we think, oh, I don't have a choice. I'm in this place and it's not going to get any better. And we start drill, drilling that hole and drilling that story as a way to kind of self-soothe, perhaps. Well, yeah, I think our, our self-stories are, are interesting and in that 
many of them we adopted as children, right? Or we adopted Mm -hmm. them as young adults. And our brain likes to create mental models of the world and categorize things, including ourselves. And so we put ourselves in certain categories and then they become sort of the filters through which we view ourselves in our lives. So maybe we have a self story that I'm not good at writing. And then we developed that like in fifth grade, we had maybe a, an incident. And then through the rest of our life, we may choose to avoid certain things that have to do with writing or not pursue things because it has to do with writing. Or I'm, I'm bad at writing. And that becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. It Self-stories can block us from other contextual you know, situations where that story is wrong. They can also block us from connecting to mm-hmm. other people because we're caught in our self-story. One of the exercises that sometimes I'll do with folks in my practice is I'll say, imagine you have a self story. What, what's one of the self stories that you struggle with? I don't know if you want to share one with, with me, Janet, and I can walk you through this exercise if you'd be willing. Well, I have a really, really easy one. Yeah. I don't like math. I don't like math. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So if you can imagine you have the self story, I don't like math and imagine you're like holding that self story in your two hands. And then put them up to your eyes like binoculars. Put your two hands up to your eyes like binoculars. And then look around your room and you can see how it limits your view, right? Mm-hmm. It's only through the I don't like math view, right? Now take your hands and slowly move them away from your face. And now, can you see me? Right, yeah. Can you see the world around you in the periphery? <laughs> and then look down, you can also see your story, right? Mm. And so getting a little bit of space from our story doesn't mean it goes away, but it does mean that we have more options to choose what we want to do. Because if I imagine that I don't like math story, probably, I mean, you were just talking about with me about all this neuroscientist that you love. So <laughs> that could get in the way of a conversation with a neuroscientist. If you say, oh, I don't like math. I don't, I'm not, I'm not a math person. So I'm going to stop listening here. <laughs> Yeah, we do shut ourselves off when we encounter those blocks, don't we? Yeah. Um, I kind of call it putting ourselves in a box, you know, that often with other people and with ourselves, it's easier to create a shape that this person belongs to than it is to think about them or to investigate further. Nope, I'm the one that doesn't like math and that's my box. And, um, it can be very challenging to get out of it. But what I'm hearing from you is that, gosh, you know, if you got a little perspective, you might see that that's not true. Or that's sometimes true. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I really like putting the comma sometimes after a sentence like that. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like math sometimes. I'm lazy sometimes. I'm a irritable mom sometimes. And so it gives you a little bit more flexibility to see that that is not, there's lots of, and actually act as a considered a contextual behavioral therapy so that context matters. And um, when you start to put some, sometimes around things, you can start to see it's not always the case. You're a little bit more flexible, right? Mm-hmm. With this, both the story. And then we can start to maybe respond to the, the, the sometimes that we're in right now, like what's in the present moment. And Independent of the self-story, what is it that I care about this moment that I want to move towards? Mm. Mm. Oh, I love the phrase, the sometimes that is right now. Because we often get stuck in that. This is what it is. Well, yeah, that was what it was a second ago, but <laughs> not necessarily now. Mm. So mm. that I think involves, and we talking about these six core processes, 
the process of perspective taking is a, such an important part of ACT because we start to develop the skills of observing our own selves, taking perspective on ourselves and seeing ourselves as sort of a transcendent self over time. So mm -hmm. there's the me here now, and then there's a me that travels all the way back in time to even before I began epigenetically, I carry the, the, you know, the DNA of my ancestors. And then there's a me that's going to move all the way into the future and will be carried on even just through the actions that I do today, how I mm -hmm. impact the environment today, right? The people that I interact with, your interaction with me is going to change my day in some way and will, and will be carried out in the rest of my evening, right? So when we start to see ourselves as transcending time and start to be more of an observer of our lives, it helps us not get so entangled in stuff and so mm, caught up yes. in it. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. Can you give us a quick outline of what those six processes are? Sure. Well, we've mentioned a few of them. So mm -hmm. the first one that we were just talking about is perspective taking, be able to take perspective on yourself and also get the eye, behind the eyes of another. The second one is being able to do what's called cognitive diffusion, which is actually a made up word, which is perfect because it's all about thoughts, which are pretty made up anyways. <laughs> so it's a cognitive diffusion is your ability to step back from your thoughts. Old, older, um, Cognitive behavioral therapies were had a lot to do with changing their thought, changing your thoughts. But sometimes, trying to change or suppress thoughts only leads to them rebounding stronger. Right. Mm. So, with cognitive diffusion, if you think about two pieces of metal that are fused together, diffusion means a little space. So you get space with your thoughts, and there's a lot of playful things that we do with that with our thoughts. Getting clear on your values. So values is the third one. And uh, we spend a lot of time on just exploring values in different domains of your life. Well, how do you want to be in relationship to um, your community or in relationship to your work? And those are really about being the person that you want to be in the world. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one is acceptance. And I often will use with clients a different word than acceptance. I'll say things like getting curious, opening up, being willing. Because sometimes folks have a negative connotation with the word acceptance. They, they associate it with a approval or liking yes. something. Yes. And you don't have to like something to accept it or to get curious about it, whether that's uh, anxiety or urges under your skin. There's a great amount of research now, um, especially coming out from a researcher, Jed Brewer, who I've interviewed a few times on the podcast that I do, Psychologist Off the Clock. And what Jed Brewer talks about and has studied in the brains of um, people that struggle with addiction is that when you get curious about the sensation of, of a craving in your body and just notice how it moves and where it is and uh, make room and space for it, it actually can change your relationship with it and also change what's happening in your brain. And mm -hmm. then it can also change behavior. You don't have to change the craving in order to change your relationship with it. And then the fifth one is about um, building values, rich habits. So it's, it's called committed action. It's making commitments in your life and taking action towards what you care about. And then finally, I saved the best for last, which is your expertise, which is being present mindfulness. And that's sort of like, you know, a very important aspect to all of this, because it's hard to change anything or accept anything if you're not present with it first. So those are the six core processes that together build your psychological flexibility. Yeah, it's easy to see how those six processes come together and 
you know, start to change perspective a little bit and also to give a lot of space around whatever it is that you're managing in that moment. And I think that's something that we often don't do is give ourselves enough space. Mm. Yeah, I think of space as freedom to move, mm-hmm. right? And and anytime we, we create more space, it's like more room to breathe, more room to explore. We don't feel as constrained, more room to choose. I think it's really important, this concept of choosing your values. They're not chosen by anyone but you. Mm-hmm. And just that small little shift to I'm choosing this makes a big difference. You know, sometimes I'll do with my kids, um, Dan Siegel's Yes Brain, which is mm-hmm. you ask a series of questions and they're supposed to say no to every single one. So like, do you want broccoli for dinner? And then they say, no. Do you want to go to the park? No. Do you want to play a game? No. And then have them pay attention to what it feels like in your body when you say no to everything. And then say yes to everything. Do you want broccoli for dinner? Do you want to go to the park? Do you uh, want to play a game? And you can see the shift, but we can do that as adults too. But the Mm -hmm. things that we're saying yes to aren't necessarily external things like jobs that we don't want to do. They're internal experiences that when you say yes to an internal experience, it opens up a little bit. What would an example of an internal experience be that, you know, you've seen that really connect with people? I think I'll give a personal one, which is for me, um, like when I'm in a conflict with my partner and in that moment, I'm really wanting to like fight and give my, give my side. And I have this sense of like self-righteousness inside of me and this, um, this sort of urgency that I need to speak and this anger. And when I turn towards that and make a little bit of space for it, and loosen up around it and not have to act on it or make it go away, then I can get more present with my partner and hear him. So that's mm-hmm. one, what's one example? I think anxiety is another one. Craving is a perfect one. When we have cravings for anything, whether it's craving to just get on our phone or craving for a substance, taking a moment of just noticing the craving and allowing it to be there and decoupling the craving from the action. Mm. So making room for the craving, allowing it to be there, saying, yep, you're here. Yep. Welcome craving, but I don't have to act on you. I can still continue to act in the direction of my values. So when we look at it that way, it's really about observing that craving. And, you know, I think if we are struggling to, you know, quit using a particular substance, then you're like, oh, I have to push that away. I have to push it away. And that's not really helping us much, is it? It's not only not helping, there's a tremendous amount of research now <laughs> that resisting and trying to get rid of uh, something like a craving only makes it rebound and makes it worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's something that Debbie Sorensen, who's my co-author, and I write about in the book, which is called experiential avoidance. And we mm-hmm. call it the experiential avoidance roundabout, which is we have all sorts of experiences. We have thoughts, sensations, feelings that show up under our skin all day long. A lot of them are uncomfortable. And what we have a tendency to do is when they show up, we turn left. And then when we show up again, we turn left. And then when they show up again, we turn left again. And you keep on turning left. And all of a sudden, you're in a roundabout of experiential avoidance. <laughs> and you're not 
heading in the direction that you want to be going because you're just taking left turns, right? So some of those things that uh, we tend to do when discomfort shows up is we tend to numb out. We tend to brace with our body. We see all the jaw clenching clenching that's led to tooth problems during the pandemic, right? We, <laughs> we hold our breaths. Mm-hmm. We also can do more subtle ones that um, we don't think is avoidance, but is things like uh, overworking, overdoing, perfectionism, striving can sometimes be avoidance of the present moment, mm-hmm. avoidance of the discomfort of living. Uh, so we are also problem solving, overthinking, Getting in our heads can be a way of avoiding. And what happens is when we're experientially avoiding the discomfort of living, it ends up pulling us often in directions that we don't want to be going and can lead to secondary problems because short term it works, but long term there's consequences. There's consequences to overworking and and not being in your life. You kind of end up not feeling super satisfied, right? Mm -hmm. You're not downloading the present moment of savoring your life. Uh, so we help people identify those and then start to do something different. But the way out of the emotional avoidance roundabout, if you've ever been caught in a roundabout, it's like that scary move you have to make to like get over a lane and get out <laughs> and then you're free. So it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but then the freedom is then you have all sorts of streets that you can go on and all different directions you can go. And, and it's chosen by you where you're going to go next. So Right, right. And we get back to agency really quickly, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and choice. Choice. Um, so something that I I thought was really interesting in the book too was that you talk about three primary systems of emotions. Um the caring system, the drive system, and the threat system. And I thought that was really intriguing. And I, I'd love for you to explain for the listeners what those three aspects are and how they affect us individually. Oh, I'm so glad you picked up on that because that's one of my favorite parts of the book. And it comes from uh, the beautiful work of Paul Gilbert, who's from the Compassionate Mind Foundation. And uh, the three systems are sort of loosely based on our emotion regulation systems in neuroscience. That humans are evolutionarily um, designed to have a threat system And the threat system is what you think it would be. It's your fight, flight, freeze system. And when your threat system is activated, your attention narrows, you have a slew of neurochemicals that get released, and your whole job is to make yourself safe, right? You tend to be over-focused on uh, negative threatening stimuli. Mm -hmm. So for many of us during this past year, our threat systems have just been completely hijacked and on alert the whole year. the thing about the threat system is that you also tend to see other people as uh, dangerous. Mm-hmm. And then we have the drive system, which is all about going and get, getting stuff. So evolutionarily, we're designed to find a mate, get food, find shelter, go out there and get stuff done, right? And our drive system is also has a pretty narrow focus. It's a competitive drive. So I'm, I'm kind of fighting against you to get to that one, one blueberry that's left, right? <laughs> and uh, it also tends to be um, pretty egocentric and driven primarily by dopamine, a wanting neurohormone. It's not a having neurohormone, but a wanting neurohormone mm-hmm. of I want. And those two systems in the West are pretty overstimulated. 
they're pretty um, heightened for a lot mm -hmm. of people. And for some people, especially with like drive, they get so heightened that they just go flat. You know, you see with depression, like I got no drive left. I'm burned out. I've got nothing. There's no and satisfaction. Then, no satisfaction. Mm -hmm. So this third system, which is sort of newer coming into psychology research, at least, is really our compassionate caring system. And humans, just as much as they were, they were, um, our brains have uh, threat detectors and drive uh, components, they're also very much designed to be a nurturing uh, pro-social species because mm -hmm. we, we give birth to um, our, our young. We are animals, humans are animals. <laughs> and we give birth to our young very, very prematurely because metabolically they probably wouldn't be able to stay in there much longer. And so we got to have a system of our brain that's designed to take care of them for the next many, many years, for some of us, 20, 30 years of their <laughs> lives, right? And this part of our brain is an interesting one. It, the, some of the neurohormones that we see associated with it are things like oxytocin, right? So the, the bonding neurohormone that's released when a mother is breastfeeding, but also the neurohormone that's released when you're hugging someone and when you're close to someone. The difference between this system and the other two is this one actually leads to more of a collaborative mindset, an expansive mm -hmm. mindset, and a feeling of contentness and safeness. And from there, we can actually move a little bit more freely in the world. But the idea is not to get rid of threat and drive, it's just to get a little more balanced with them because many of us feel out of balance. And that's why we start our book with um, practices for compassion because some of these compassion-based practices are really helpful at cultivating that caring system. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and also I believe, you know, you equate compassion and how that relates to resilience or leads to resilience, um, both for ourselves, self-compassion and compassion for others. Yeah. Paul Gilbert talks about three, three of them, you know, the, the three flows of compassion. And one is receiving compassion from mm -hmm. others in addition to giving compassion to others and receiving it to ourselves. So some of us have a really hard time taking in compassion. And especially if you have had a history of um, having a critical parent or you know trauma in your life, it can feel really scary to receive compassion, to take in the goodness from others. Mm -hmm. And that's very important to our nervous system to be able, you know, something as when Debbie and I were, we, we wrote a book about psychological flexibility together during a pandemic as parents and psychologists. And man, that was rough. It required some psychological flexibility <laughs> and compassion for each other. Mm -hmm. And so even in writing this chapter, it was like, whoa, Debbie, I'm, I'm overloaded this week. Can you help me out? And to be able to receive her compassion for her to carry the load a little bit and take like really take that in was also part of soothing my nervous system right making me feel safe and then i would do the same for her and then when we give compassion it also soothes our nervous system it feels good to care mm. for another we just found a baby bunny in our yard i live in this like uh -huh. homestead up here in santa barbara and we found a baby bunny yesterday that was just the tiniest little thing and i held it in my little hands and i was just you know breathing with it and holding it was it was injured and the, the process of taking that little bunny down to the wildlife refuge and, and how, you know, them taking it and the sweet people that took it to go take care of it, it was both extremely painful and rewarding at the same time. And oftentimes what we find is that 
being able to be open and move move into the pain of actually like caring for this animal, not just seeing it as, you know, dispensable, but really caring for it and holding it and paying attention to its breath and also getting it so the care that it needs required for me both to move towards the suffering as well as take action to alleviate it. And that's what, mm -hmm. uh, when you think about compassion and what Paul Gilbert writes about is that's really the definition as both willingness to engage with and make contact with what's uncomfortable and then do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And all, a lot of studies have shown how much we get from giving compassion. It's definitely not a one-way street. And, you know, when we feel compassion for someone, even if we don't physically lift them up and take them to the wildlife shelter, just the act of cradling him in your hands and appreciating that life is something that really gives a lot back to you as much as it gives to the other person or being. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. How, yeah. That's how humans and are, are so, um, have this gift. Mm. Sometimes we, because we go slowly into drive, we go so quickly into, let's call the shelter to go find out where, you know, how this problem and we don't pause and say, wait a minute, how am I handling this thing? Whether mm -hmm. that's thing, you know, whether that's a friend that's coming to us with a problem, how am I handling this thing before I start giving advice and fixing it? How am I just handling her hurt? Am I handling it gently and with loving eyes and with, you know, a slow voice and a soothing tone? Or am I rushing to fix because of my own discomfort about it? I mean, mm -hmm. as a therapist, Clients talk about really difficult things with me, suicidal thoughts, trauma. And the most important thing is how am I handling this? How, and when I mean say handling, holding, holding space for it. Yes. You know, much like you, you would hold a crying baby, you don't have to shush it right away. Mm -hmm. You can just hold it and love it. And that makes a big difference whether we're doing that for someone else or we're doing that for our own painful parts. Yes, yes. And having that that sense of connection and, you know, really holding that space is very powerful for the other person too, because once they feel that safety, then it's much easier for them to unburden themselves and to be more open with their communication because there's trust developed. Yeah. And the more willing they're going to hear it. Whatever yeah. advice you have, if you have advice, there's uh, there's a type of therapy called motivational interviewing, and it's mm -hmm. one of the most effective therapies for substance use in terms of changing people's motivation to change. And I interviewed Stefan Rolnick, who's one of the founders of motivational interviewing, and we talked about this this concept that I love that he, ca he calls it the fixing reflex, mm -hmm. which is when somebody else is, you know, <laughs> doing something we don't like. We go into fix. And then as soon as we go to fix, guess what we get? Resistance. Mm -hmm. So this whole this whole motivational approach is one of the most most used approaches for substance use out there to change people's motivation, you know, to get people to to change their behavior. It's all based on open questions, mm -hmm. acceptance, allowing. And then as soon as you notice just a little bit of a shift, like someone is starting to talk about a change, like, huh, maybe I should you know, do something about my exercise patterns. I think I might sign up for something. Then you reinforce that, you affirm it. You say, oh, it sounds like that's something that's important to you. 
Mm-hmm. That's all you say. You don't have to give advice. And just affirming each other, affirming each other's goodness, affirming our own goodness is really powerful in promoting change. Yes, absolutely. And and there's a huge difference between fixing and listening. And I'm I'm one of those people that my instant urge is to solve everyone's problem before they ask. And often they're not even asking for help. They're just wanting to let you know that they're struggling with something. And I'm going to ask you a question about that because mm. that points to me. If you weren't to fix their problem, what would you be feeling? If they were just frustrated, frustrated, because, you know, I got a fix. It's the way I was bred and raised. And oh, yeah, my family is all fixers. But um, over the years, I've become more and more interested in in what's called humble inquiry. And really, okay, I see that you have a problem. And asking questions about it and being curious before you ask them would you like help? Yeah. And it's incredibly powerful to be able to just recognize what you're doing. Oh, fixing, step back, take a breath. Okay. Yeah. And I would, and I would, I love that humble, humble inquiry and, and maybe even adding on making space for the fact that you're probably going to be experiencing in your body frustration mm-hmm. while you act on humble inquiry. That's the roundabout, like to get out of that fixing roundabout, you got to exit. And the exit move for you is to feel frustration. Mm-hmm. But it's probably a short term thing, because once you start engaging in more humble inquiry and you start getting the intrinsic reward of the connection yes. from humble inquiry, then probably the frustration will shift, right? But it's that roundabout move is that I got to exit this and it's going to be uncomfortable for a period of time because you're, you're shifting a behavior. And especially if it's a behavior that was modeled to you that you don't even consciously know how or when that happened, but it's just was part of your early childhood, um, you know, neural connections that were made. It's really challenging. And that's where being present and being conscious and, and slowing things down and and doing some of these skills can be really helpful in changing old old habits and old patterns. Yes, yes. And that reminds me of something else I grabbed from the book. And that was the concept of unconscious rules, which, oh yeah, we all have them, right? Oh yeah, we all have them. They're so subtle, even in the sense of like rules around how you sit and how you eat and how you stand and how you respond. You know, everything from the unconscious rules of, Uh, learning how to sneeze differently, right? During COVID, (laughs) you know, all these things. And this is just what the brain does. It it creates rules to, to uh, make life easier on us, but not so helpful when you need to adapt to a changing world, because some Mm -hmm. of the rules that we may have adapted as children, or even as young adults, we may not need anymore. They may not, may may no, no longer be workable for us. So getting sort of underneath some of those rules and being playful, I'm trying them out like today, what would happen? Helpful and growing flexible mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It's um, when I, when I read that in, in the book, I was like, oh, okay, let's do a quick inventory of what unconscious rules I have, you know, and I'm ambidextrous, but there are some things that I always do right-handed some things I always do left-handed. And I started thinking about why do I do that this way? You know, and it's very 
It's very interesting. But on the other hand, it's like, <laughs> it's like rails in a bowling alley. <laughs> you know, we need some guide rails to keep us from wandering off too much all the time. You get that feeling of chaos if, you know, there aren't some guides in place, but then we can also have too many rules or, as you said, irrelevant rules. Right. Irrelevant rules. I worked for a long time with eating disorders. That was my specialty mm -hmm. in graduate school. And that's, that's the example of like rules gone awry, right? Yeah. You've done so much rule following of actually what society has told you to, to be a good person that it's actually gotten you really sick. Yeah. Right. And so that's where questioning when, when you start noticing that rules are not serving you or or even think about rules around, um, you know, things that we need to change, um, especially in the U.S. around oppression and racism and sexism and um, body uh, stigma. Mm -hmm. Right. There's certain rules that we've been believing about ourselves or other people or that have been taught to us that we need to to shift. We need to make this change. Yes. And so that's where flex flexibility and adaptation is really important. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely see that. <laughs> Lots of things in our lives mm -hmm. that we don't look at very closely. And then we go, oh, wow, I need to work on that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Diana, thank you so much for spending time with us. I would love for you to let people know where they can find the book, where they can find you. And of course, it'll all be in the blog post on the website, JanetFouts.com, and also in the notes for the podcasts. Well, thanks for having me first. It's just really a pleasure to speak with you. And I feel that that concept of neurocoupling, you slow me down. I tend to run a little fast. Mm. <laughs> so. I love I love your 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 spacing and your speed and your tone. It's it's very nice to slow Thank me you. down a little bit. And you can find me at drdianahill.com. Uh, you can go through my book page there and I am offering uh actually a workshop on act with compassion if you uh show me that you that you got the book. It's like one of those freebie things. And then I have a lot of teachings there. I teach it inside LA throughout the year on ACT. I also teach uh, through mindful heart programs and I offer Tuesday teachings that are, a lot of these are low cost and free. And then I have a podcast called Psychologists Off the Clock, which four psychologists get together and we talk about the science of psychology and uh, how we use it in our own lives. So those are all different places to go. You can also find me, I'm, I'm on Instagram recently and I post there uh, mainly about ACT and, and, I, and I make it as, as um, safe and intentional as I possibly can. So mm -hmm. that's at Dr. Diana Hill as well. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Diana. It was really fun. And uh, I highly encourage people to get the book. And this is an eight week program. It's not gonna take you a lot of time. There's a lot of, not a lot of commitment. But there's a lot of value in there, and I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to share it with you all. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Mindful Social. It's been so great to see the subscriptions growing, and the feedback has really helped me make the show even better. So if you know somebody who needs to be on the show, email me at Janet at JanetFouts.com. And please, send me feedback there, too, or post a review on the podcast platform you're listening on. Oh, and do me a favor, share this show on social media or with a friend. Thank you.